You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. Boy, Robert Greene is one of the smartest people I know. He wrote The 48 Laws of Power. He wrote Mastery. He was one of the first guests I ever had in 2014, actually. So smart. His books... They're like 20 books in, in one. I feel like my IQ actually rises every time I read one of his books. There's so many stories, so many examples about human nature, how to achieve mastery, how to persuade people, all these examples from thousands of years of history. And I just learn so much every time I read one of his books. And I learn so much every time he's on the podcast and I get to ask all my questions. Again, this is, this is one of my all-time favorite writers and his books are great. Again, 48 Laws of Power, and the new one now, The Daily Laws. Here he is. Enjoy. Robert, also, I don't know if you remember, you were one of the first, my first guests back in 2014. Is that right? Yeah, it was right after Mastery, or it was around the time, I had just read Mastery, let's put it that way, and I, and I was really excited by it. 
So it was around that time. Why don't I remember that? I'm, I'm very sorry. You know, I, I, I've, I've done a lot of podcasts and I'm getting old. So my you know, memory has th- these like holes and it's like Swiss cheese or something. I always tell people I can remember things that happened to me when I was like 17 years old, like oh, as if they were yesterday, tell me, but I tell can't, me about it. but I, I cannot remember what I ate for breakfast. <laughs> so yeah. something happens to the brain. You talk about mastery in, and you, you talk about it in a neurological sense that often the master will initially use their frontal cortex to learn everything, but it's right. so much information. It kind of goes into other parts of the brain where it gets more right. solidified. So right. that's why the frontal cortex actually seems to barely move later on in their true mastery. And I'm wondering how this relates to, uh, as we get older, <laughs> is there, is there some parts of memory that really go just decline or is just things moving around in our brain differently? I don't know. I mean, I'm not a neurologist. I, I haven't really studied the, the process of memory, although I'm kind of going into it a little bit in my new book. But um, it's the weird, the weird thing is the phenomenon which you just mentioned, which I mean, somehow we w- I would like to get somebody to explain it to me, which is as you get older, all kinds of memories come back from your childhood, from your earliest years. And I'm getting this all the time. It's like we're almost like deja vu, like feelings of I can remember suddenly some incident that was probably very trivial at the time that happened when I was seven years old, et cetera. And then at the same time, as you mentioned, most recent events completely drop out of, uh, you know, I don't even remember what happened like two days ago. Yeah, I'm not really sure where that comes from. I'm sure there's a very interesting explanation. And as I said, I'm kind of going into that in my new book because I'm writing a chapter on childhood and how some writers have been able to kind of recapture their earliest memories and kind of go back into the mindset of what it was like to be two or three years old. And I'm kind of fascinated by that. Your your book that you're working on, I should say, is called The Law of the Sublime. That's right. We could talk about that in a little bit, but I, I was so excited by your book that just came out, The Daily Laws. I mean, you it deals with so many topics that you've dealt with before, which mastery, persuasion, seduction, power, war. The, the format is, of course, day by day, January 1st. Here's what you should think about January 2nd, January 3rd, yeah. all the way through the year. And I, I am definitely ordering copies for all my kids. Like, oh, good. these are such important things for every... look. I'm ordering it for myself. Like these are such important things for me to learn and relearn. And you've talked about these topics before, but I really felt the way you summarized everything here was so concise and thoughtful and, and actionable. Like particularly how you summarize at the end of each day, this is what you should do today to follow this law or to practice this law. Right. But you know, the one thing I've noticed though, is that this is the first, or maybe not the first, but I think it is the first, this is the first book where you really go autobiographical. Like you tell your story. That's right. How did you feel about that? Because you've never done that before. Well, I had mixed emotions. I've always tried to project this idea that my books, I mean, it might be, it's very grandiose of me, obviously, but these books are like, I'm the voice of God, that I have understood power by, by reading all the great classics. And almost as if there's this kind of disembodied voice from the heavens of somebody who understands power. And it has nothing to do with me personally. So I've always tried to create that kind of sense that there's this voice speaking to you and you don't really know where it's from. It's almost like beyond the author. But at the same time, writing a book, my first book, The 48 Laws of Power, came out of a lot of experiences that I had had in Hollywood. 
dealing with very manipulative Machiavellian characters in the film business. And they inspired it. So reading between the lines, a lot of my own experiences were in the book. They were just very much disguised. But I felt like this was a time to kind of open up a little bit and reveal how what I just said, that so many of the things I write about actually come from deep experiences, from a lot of pain, in, in fact, in my life. So I kind of empathize a lot with people who right now maybe not are not so happy or sad or fulfilled with their lives, with their jobs, their careers, or with dealing with people who are very political, because I dealt with that for so many years, and I kind of poured it out into my book in this indirect way. And now I want to kind of take the mask off, pull the curtain away, and reveal that it's not the voice of God, but it's just this human being, this Oz behind the curtain who's who's creating the books. And I think that did come out like, the first thing um, that was very relatable and I can relate to it and, and I'm sure many others, you were 36 years old and you felt kind of like a failure or, 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 or your parents did or both. And uh, uh, you, were, you had up to 60 jobs, different jobs at that point. You had traveled all over the place. You had always wanted to be a writer, but you kind of failed at it in some ways because you, you, the only way to make money you thought at it was a, to be a journalist and, and you didn't enjoy that as much as you thought. Yeah. And so here you are 36 and suddenly the opportunity to create the 48 laws of power happened to you and you, you reach this excitement. Describe what happened. Like, was that the first time you felt that kind of excitement and then you know, knew this was it? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard to go back because we're talking 25, 26 years ago. But it's a very vivid memory because I was in Venice, Italy. How can you forget that? I was walking with this man who who produced my books, Joost Elfer, is a very wonderful man, designer of books, a packager. And it was this beautiful day. And sort of welling inside of me was all of my frustration with Hollywood. We were in Italy for a job at the time, and things weren't really going so well with the job. And when he asked me if I had any ideas for books, it was one of those moments that happened, I don't know, not often in most people's lives. It's only happened to me once where I immediately felt like, hmm, this is very interesting. There's a click going on in my brain. Like this could be exactly what I was meant to do. Not writing a novel, which I was trying to have been trying to do for years or a screenplay, but an actual book, a nonfiction book. And when you, you we've all had the experience. When you feel excited about something, when something like when you feel that little click in your brain, like I felt, everything changes. Your voice changes. Your your whole manner of speaking changes. Suddenly, ideas come to you. You're inspired. It's that feeling of inspiration, and that's what happened to me because I was able to pull from all of my experiences in Hollywood and all of the books I had read about power and kings and queens and people like Cesare Borgia. And I just sort of vomited out this idea about how power has never changed, that people may not be wearing powdered wigs and, and you know, weird clothes, et cetera, and weird hairstyles, but they're still doing this, they're still playing the same games. It hasn't changed. And I gave probably the greatest, the best pitch of my life. And he, he loved the book. He loved the idea that he said, you go back to Los Angeles, you write a treatment, and if I like it, I'll pay you to live while you write the book. And um, it was the turning point in my life. Obviously, I wouldn't be here talking to the great James Altucher if it hadn't been <laughs> yeah. for that kind of lucky moment with the sun shining, with my sort of inspiration and kind of this weird idea that I pitched. But, um, you know, I wish I wish that would happen to more people. It, it was a very, very exciting moment for me.
Well, it, it, it was exciting to read it and it's inspirational to read it because so much of, so, you know, of your writing talks about mastery, not only the pursuit of it, but the experience of it, the pleasure of it, the purpose of it, and how it's related to all the other topics, which is, you know, persuasion and how to weave your way through the small-minded politics of the many. But I think there's a lot to unpack in this story. One is he asked you for an idea for a book. Now, here you've spent years reading biographies and histories, plus having your own experiences where you, you were able to relate all of these things together. And you, and you talk about this in The Daily Laws, how often mastery comes from combining all of these skills and elements in your life. But there's this simplicity. It's the 48 laws of power. It's not going to be very complicated. There's going to be law one, law two, law three. It's very straightforward. And I think that in itself shows mastery in writing. Would you agree? Like I would say many writers who aren't, who haven't mastered the, the art of it, it's a little, it's very difficult to be simple. Yes. I mean, I, I don't know where that comes from. I mean, I've always been somebody who kind of likes that style of writing, like in novels, I like a sort of a Hemingway type who's very kind of direct and to the point and kind of captures the reality of the moment. Um, and so I've been attracted to that my whole life, but also, um, you know, I didn't, I wanted to create a book that reflected the reality of power itself and not something that was theoretical and academic and not something that was just like a pure self-help book, but that captured the reality that we all deal with. And so I had to do a lot of research, which I obviously is sort of my specialty, but then I don't want the reader to feel like this is a book with all these ideas and all these complicated things going on. I want, as you said, I want the reader to feel that this the author has gone to the essence of it. He's explaining things that happen to me every day of my life, and he's doing it within the context of history. And to be honest with you, James, that is not an easy thing to do. That is not something that just kind of flows out of you. It took a lot of hard work. And this is my first book, so I had to really kind of hone my style and figure out that voice that I was talking about. And I just think um, a lot of my experience, for instance, in journalism taught me to be very direct and concise and get to the point and have the idea there up front. And then my experience in Hollywood taught me to, to make things kind of entertaining and fun for the reader. So all of that kind of diverse experience that some of it seemed irrelevant came to play in what you call kind of the mastery of that book. But Really, in, in, in reality, I was struggling to kind of figure out how to make a book like this. I mean, that, that in a sense was your uh, kind of initial stages then of mastering this process, because then you went on to many more books. And again, I think the simplicity of it, not even in just the language, but the format of it, just it's, here's 48 laws. It's a list. It was yeah. very easy to digest, just like just like the daily laws is very easy to digest. And I'll admit when I first got it, I thought it was going to be like a calendar. Okay. Here's going to be 365 quotes from Robert Greene, but you really, you really made a, a new book kind of taking to the next level, all of, all of your ideas. And, you know, and I, and I, I what I'm always most interested in is mastery. And, and again, we talked earlier about how we're all aging. I'm 53, you know, you're 36 plus 26 apparently <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. whatever that is. Yeah. And, uh, uh, do you think even at a lot of people say, Oh, you have to be in your twenties to get good at something. The best mathematicians were 24 years old. The best musicians are prodigies. 
and, and on and on and on. Do you think someone listening to this who maybe was laid off in, in, the, un, in, in the pandemic or is kind of searching for something new to do now, do you think it's possible to, to start anew and master something you loved as a child and, and you want to bring back into your life? Well, I'll say this, James, you're 53 and you're in the prime of life. So your best years are ahead of you. Okay. That's good to know. Um, well, it, it, everything depends on the individual. I mean, you often you're going to be your own worst enemy where all of the bad experiences you've had in life, the, the moments of failure, the people who criticized you, they're going to weigh you down. And if you reach that moment during the pandemic or wherever, where you're laid off or you don't want, you quit your job, which a lot of people are doing. If you have, if the, all of that stuff is like a big weight on your back and you can't get it off of your back, it's going to be very difficult to find your way to mastery. So it often depends on how much pain and how much baggage you have in the moment that you make a decision like that. It's always possible to go through a process to get rid of that stuff and to kind of put yourself in the moment. If, it, if you are really motivated, if you really feel, I've got to make it this time, like I felt when I was 36, I felt it was really get rich or die trying. If I didn't make this book a success, I was probably going to commit suicide. I was really depressed at the time. So your level of, of frustration and, and the sense that you really want to change the course of your life is going to be the key, whether you can get rid of a lot of that baggage and get rid of the criticism and all the voices of other people that you have internalized, right? But... Um, all of us have that within them. It's, it's, a, it's a possibility, and I describe it, you know, as best I can in mastery. But, um, you know, the, the thing is, you're at, you're at a key point in your life at this, let's say you're in your 30s. As I said, as you say, you know, if you're a mathematician or a chess player, it's probably a little too late when you're in your 30s or 40s to imagine that you're going to be, become a great mathematician or chess player don't tell me that about chess i just played in my first chess tournament in 24 years oh and wow. i'm on a path to improvement hopefully well you can you can make you can become extremely good but i don't think you're going to become a grandmaster i'm very sorry to say that that's probably true i am i am ranked as a master but you uh, are yeah you are but, but when i was a kid i was and oh you know oh, now, oh. now it's it's interesting because the world has grown up too right but, but the, the main thing is, uh, so that's very interesting what you just said, because you played a lot when you were, when you were a kid, right? Yeah. Or when so I was that, like young. Yeah. So that had a huge impact on you because when you're young, the mind is like a sponge and you absorb so much. And so you come back to it 30 years, 40 years later, it's all in there. You know, it's, it's just going to be respart. It's like you rode a bicycle when you're 13, you haven't ridden one since, but when you're 53, you can pick it up and ride again. So that's very interesting. But the point is, let's say you're in your 30s and you reach that, that moment where you just want to change in your life. The thing you have to remember, and I talk about in mastery, you don't want a drastic change. You don't want to go from being an accountant, suddenly, suddenly say, I'm going to become a poet or I'm going to become a rock star. You know, you want to work with what you have already. You want to, you want to go back to what you love and what you're excited about, music, or, or the arts or something else or politics. You want to go back to that, but you want to use the skills that you have already developed. You don't want a radical change because that's only going to set yourself up for more failure and it's only going to weigh you down more and you're going to get down on yourself and you're just going to quit.
So, but let, let, let's take this example though. Like, let's say you're an accountant and you've been one for 30 years and you decided, okay, I got laid off. Uh, I don't really want to keep applying for accounting jobs. I love sports. I'm obviously not going to be an athlete, but when I was a kid, all I did was sports. I loved it. I memorized every statistic. I played every sport. I'm not talking about me, obviously, but I'm just making this up. But uh, what what does that person do? How how can they take the next step? And it doesn't have to be professional success. You know, where where how would so, should someone like that think? Well, you should think that you've, you've you've been an accountant. I don't know for how many years, and that is a skill. I mean, you, whatever you want to say about that, you just find it kind of boring. But you want to see, well, maybe I can get into the sports world through accounting. Maybe there are positions available. Um, you know, a, a, I mean, this isn't the best example, but in sports right now, the huge movement has to do with statistics, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe not an account is the best example there. But let's say you're someone who who studied statistics early on, and you got into a, a job that's totally unrelated that has to do with algorithms and something that bores you. Well, in sports, there's been this explosion of of people using algorithms to decide where to position baseball players. They call it the shift on field or what's the best place on a basketball court to shoot a shot in, et cetera. So you want to combine things. You want to combine skills. You want to take your the experience you had in numbers and statistics and apply it to something that actually excites you. Now, it's not going to be the perfect thing. You're not going to become uh, you know, a, a point guard on the Chicago Bulls in your 30s, obviously. But you're going to get closer to it. You're going to get closer to that thrill of being involved with sports in some level. And then maybe slowly you can kind of get more. You'll, you're exploring. This is what I want to tell you in life. You need to be an explorer and not get stuck in something where you think this is the only thing I can do. I'm trapped in life. You want a little bit of sense of adventure like you had as a child. So this is I'm, I'm going this direction with my accounting or my, my statistics. Let's try this path and combine it with something that excites me a little bit more, whether that's sports or arts or anything else like that. I know that's a bit abstract, and in my consulting work with people, I try to make it a little more real where we actually decide upon an actual position that you can aim for. But in the abstract, it's sort of the process I, I would go through. Yeah, it's interesting. And you know, you say later on in the book, I think it's actually in the month of December or no, maybe November, I forget, but uh, you say the biggest problem people have, and you refer to your consulting, a lot of people come to you and say, hey, Robert, this is X, Y, and Z that's going on in my life. What should I do? And and the biggest problem they have, you, you describe, is other people, ultimately. Right. They might think it's some other problem, but ultimately it's the people in their lives. Maybe, maybe describe what you mean by that. Well, on, on some level, on the basic level, just talking about your career, that problem will be that you you knew when you were four or five years old that this was something that excited or interested you in a very primal way. And then as you get older, you hear what your parents tell you you should be doing. You hear what your teachers say you're good at and bad at. You hear what your friends and colleagues say, this is a cool profession, this isn't. You start getting involved in social media, which tells you what this is, what's interesting and what's not. And you lose a complete sense of who you are. So other people will be a massive, massive distraction when it comes to figuring out what you want to do in life. But what, I, what I'm really directing that particular story at in, in the book is the fact that 
in my consulting, I would deal with people who were very powerful in their business, you know, CEOs. I was on the board of directors of a very famous publicly traded company, American Apparel. I would deal with very high level business people, people in entertainment, et cetera. And these were inevitably men and women who were very brilliant at their field. They were very creative. They were very charismatic. But they had one blind spot. They had an Achilles heel, which is dealing with people, dealing with the politics, dealing with people's weird psychology. And so, you know, that's when I decided I had to write a book about this. I mean, it, I think we've reached a point now where we're, we're basically social animals. That's who we are. That's what defines us. That's what made us human beings and made us powerful today with all our technology, et cetera, our ability to work together and, and work in teams, et cetera. And, and we have these incredible social skills, these abilities, these empathic skills to understand in a nonverbal way the moods of other people, et cetera. It's almost like telepathy. And we're losing it. It's getting degraded slowly and slowly, year by year, decade by decade. A lot of it has to do with technology and social media, not completely, but a lot of it has to do with that. We're not spending time with other people. We're not observing them. If you think back to like 1810, if you suddenly I could whisk James back to the year 1810, how would you get any kind of fun or entertainment? You had no phone, you had no internet, you had no television. I, I'd, get, no, I'd get syphilis right away. Well, that's exactly right. You'd be going to a lot of brothels and you'd pick up syphilis. So your only form of entertainment was other people, either going to a brothel or going to a salon where you have literary meetings, etc. It was socializing. And in that time, you, it's a skill. It's a skill like anything else you put in your 10,000 hours. You, you deal with people so much, you develop this kind of subtle intelligence. And when we spend so much of our time on Zoom, Zoom is not the same thing as a person-to-person -person meeting, although I really love the opportunity to be talking to you here on something similar to Zoom. We're not spending enough time with people. We're not observing them, and we lose that kind of sensitivity and so these people who were very powerful in their field, who understood technically what to do, they had no clue as to what was going on in the minds of others. They would hire a business partner based on their charm and their glittering resume, only to realize that this person had a terrible character, that they were malicious, that they pretended to be charming, that they ended up stealing their company, or that they were incredibly incompetent or stupid and they disguised it in a meeting. On and on and on. That's the number one problem I would be consulting about. I hired the wrong person. Okay. So I began to put the pieces together and figure out in 2015 or so when I started writing the book, we have a problem here. We have a problem with people, even people very powerful, where we're not understanding basics about human psychology. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known 
people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So let's say you, you, you are a certain age, whatever it is, in your 20s, 50s, 40s, whatever, and you want to get on this path of mastery. You, you identify some childhood passion that you decided, okay, I love this. I would really love to get better at it or, or, or you know, put in my hours and, and be successful at this. But as you point out in the book, so many people will tell you not to do it. 
parents, education, social media, your friends who are side by side with you in the accounting business or, or wherever you are, why is everybody so against kind of going a unique path? Well, um, a lot of it has to do with fear. I mean, you know, the flip side of being a social animal is that we're also like pack animals and we tend to conform to what other people are doing. And we have a very great fear of being different. I mean, there have been a lot of studies, and I did this when I wrote the book, The Laws of Human Nature, about people who've been ostracized. Let's say like in the Cultural Revolution in China in the 60s, and suddenly you were denounced as being an imperialist uh, you know, spy for the United States and you were ostracized. It was like you were dead and these people would commit suicide. They fall in the incredible depression or mm. people now who are being canceled, whose whole career has been destroyed, wiped out. They're humiliated, they're disgraced and no one will return their phone calls anymore. It's like feeling like you've died. You know, you've separated from the group. So we have primal fears of that sense of being separated from the group. We have, we're very much inclined towards pleasing other people and feeling like we're part of the of the clan etc it's very deep within us but the thing is you don't have to lose that you don't have to lose your sense of being connected to other people but what you want to do is also get a sense of connection to yourself to who you are think of that as something that's that's almost more important than anything else and so if you lose that connection to who you are your, even your social interactions are gonna are gonna be unfulfilling, right? Because you, you deep down you don't feel satisfied with what you're doing, so you're not really connecting to your wife, to your spouse, to your boss. You're inside your head with all of your bitterness and resentment. So feeling satisfied with your career, feeling like you're on the right path or you're going in the right direction, will help you in all of your social encounters as well. And then, you know, the, the problem is how do you do that? What's the process involved? Because it's not easy to get rid of that fear of being different. And, I'm, and I try and tell people, when, especially when I do the consulting, is that your uniqueness, what makes you quote unquote weird, is your source of power. It's like you, it's a, it's a, it will make you a superman or woman, right? It's being unique, being different. So we can think of all the people who are truly successful in our world um, you know, like an Elon Musk or back in the day, Steve Jobs or, or, or rock stars, et cetera. They're one of a kind. There's nobody else like them. We can't say there's anybody else like Elon Musk. He's truly better or worse because there's some bad sides to him as well, though I like him. You know, there's only one person like that. People like that follow their weirdness, their uniqueness all the way until it brings them power. And they're not afraid. They hear a lot of criticism but they're more deeply attached to themselves, to their path, to what excites them than to all the other little petty voices of people telling them what they should do. So in the end, it's more important in the long run that you connect to yourself in some deep way and lose some of these fears that we all have of, of that kind of ostracism I talked about. And, and what, you know, for, for, let's say someone has spent five, 10, 20 years, being a pack animal, you know, and I don't say this in a bad way. This is, you know, most jobs you stay, you know, you were ex initially expected to stay in jobs for, for practically a lifetime. You put in your 10,000 hours being the same as everyone else. You get so good at not being unique. How do they then recover that unique voice? How do they find it? Like people who say, oh, just be yourself. 
that sometimes is very hard to do. It's not. There's no just about it. <laughs> well, I, I'm a realist. I'm a practical person. That's sort of the theme through all of my books, and it's the theme of, of the daily laws. So I never tell people it's just a matter of suddenly changing and being yourself and getting rid of all of those other habits you've developed. That you're setting yourself up for failure and more frustration and more self-hate of yourself, thinking, oh, I can't do this, etc. The process is baby steps. The only thing that any anything ever good happens in this world is if you learn slowly, 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 slowly. You want to be great at chess, James? You can't suddenly learn all the master, all the moves, and in one week become a master. It takes years of practice, right, of, of absorbing all the different patterns on a chessboard. So drop this notion that drastic change is in store for you and that you're going to suddenly turn your life around in a matter of days or weeks or months. It's going to take years. So calm yourself down and have a degree of patience and be patient with yourself and have a plan and take baby steps, right? And the baby steps might involve, okay, I've, I've spent my whole life heading in this direction. I'm heading towards a, a, a wall and I'm frustrated and there's no future in it, all right? So you got to step back and patiently, I, I tell people the journal that you start thinking, well, what was it that I was meant to do? What excites me in life, all right? Well, it's more this direction, okay? But I can't suddenly drop my job tomorrow and go in that direction. What can I do to take these small incremental steps towards it? I could maybe start going to night school if I'm, if I'm working during the day, and I can start taking classes in that other field so I could develop some skill in that that will help me make a, some kind of transition. And I can tell you, the moment you make a decision like that, if you're flipping burgers at McDonald's or you're an accountant in some firm, the moment you decide, this is what I'm going to try, you're going to change already from within. You're going to feel a sense of excitement, even though you know that it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take years. Just the fact of making that decision will be a critical point in your life, right? So just think of it continually as a process, as a step-by-step-by-step -by -step -by -step process, hour by hour, day by day, week by week. And you're going to take these small steps towards your goals. And I often give people a kind of a, a calendar and we sort of map out, not being too specific, like this is where I'm going to be in a month. This is where I'm going to be in two months. And the sense that I reached that goal in a month, I learned this amount of skill or I made this decision, is very it restores your faith in yourself. Because that's what happens when you have a, sh a shit job like I've had for many years. You start losing faith in yourself. Yeah, and I think, you know, you bring up uh, two interesting, you bring up a lot of aspects of mastery and and, and in, in the book and, and, in the, and in all your books. But there's two things that came, struck me in the daily laws. One is... Let's say you have a big goal, like, okay, I'm going to be, you know, a, a I'm going to go from being an accountant to being a nationwide rock star, global rock star. But it's very good to have s tiny, small goals along the way, because that's what you can actually measure. So let's say, okay, I want to just learn an instrument good enough that my kids like it, or I want to be able to play in a, a co local coffee house on open mic night and right. not get not get booed at. And I think that is very important to, to be patient enough. And you bring up patience and, and the, the negativity of impatience a lot in the, in the book. I think it's good to have the patience for those small goals and really write them down and, and map it out. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
you know, if you want change, if you're frustrated and you reach that point, like I had reached when I was 36 years old, you're probably going to be willing to try anything, right? But your, your, your greatest obstacle will be your level of impatience, as you mentioned. You, 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 you're so upset and frustrated, you're so emotional that you want it to happen overnight, right? And it doesn't occur that way. But the way to calm your emotions down and get over that is to have a plan, is to organize your life a little bit. That's not going to make it all boring and drab. People think of having a plan as kind of ruining the, the sexiness of whatever you're going to do. Actually, it's very liberating. Putting things on paper, making them concrete, having concrete goals. This is what I'm going to be at in a week. This is what I'm going to be at in six months. Is very liberating. It's going to emotionally free you up, and you're not going to feel that gnawing sense of bitterness. You feel like you're on a path towards something else in your life, and that's extremely important. And you also mentioned the importance of experimentation, like experimenting on ideas. Because I think, and I agree with this. Like this is how you become unique. Is just the nature of experimenting is how you discover. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of things in the world today that I would personally like not like that I would criticize, like about the internet, social media, etc. But there is one amazing thing, probably the most brilliant thing that we can say about the times that we live in, and that's the access that we have to information and to knowledge. It's absolutely mind blowing. You have to be old enough to remember the pre-internet days to know how insane it is that with one click, I can now, I'm, I'm writing my book and I have a question about the ancient Greeks and something that happened on this particular week. I do a click and sure enough, some, some idiot somewhere has written a whole insane Wikipedia passage, not idiot, but some specialist has written some Wikipedia passage about the very thing I need to know. It's unbelievable. You know, it's like if Leonardo da Vinci could even dream of such a possibility, he would just absolutely die. But here we take it for granted. So you have this power, this ability to learn things now in any field that you want to just through your computer. You don't have to go to night school. You don't have to do all these other things. You have access to incredible amounts of information and knowledge. And so the power in the world in the future is the ability to connect different ideas together. When I wrote Mastery, one of my favorite books that I read uh, for research was a book by a, a famous writer named Arthur Kessler called The Act of Creation. And he tried to figure out what makes create what makes a creative person. And you can relate to this. Believe it or not, he, he first um, related it to comics, to comedians, mm. and the process of coming up with a joke mm. and how you had to, the brain had to connect one seemingly irrelevant idea with another idea and that kind of is sort of the essence in some ways of humor and so the creative act itself is connecting things that other people have never thought about right and this happens all the time in scientists great scientists solve a terrible problem like louis pasteur did with immunology by connecting two things that nobody had ever thought of before you know these chickens who had received this one um, batch of, of, of chicken pox. And then he went back later and, and gave it to him again. And suddenly they were, they didn't die. And then he realized the first person to realize that they had actually been immunized. Nobody ever thought about that. So here we have the power to connect two ideas, three, four hundreds of ideas through the internet. It's this unbelievable opportunity, this tool that we have, and you need to avail yourself of that. And what's interesting is that it changes the nature 
of not only education, but of expertise and mastery. So let's say you lived in a small community a hundred years ago and you needed financial advice or stock market advice. You would go to simply the person who had the most information about the stock market. But now information is more of a commodity. Everybody could have that information. And so it seems like the shift now, and maybe this was always the case, but the shift is who can discover the most as opposed to who knows the most. It seems like discovery is the skill that that is is now, and, and maybe it again, maybe it always was at the highest level, but that's the skill of mastery is, to, is the ability to discover new things as opposed to just accumulating a lot of information. Yeah, I mean, that, that, is, that is a problem that we all face. We have too much information rolling around in our brains. That's the dark side, the flip side of the positivity of the internet. And we can't, we don't know how to organize the information. A lot of what I've learned over the years in writing my books, which is not the same for everybody else, is the ability to write a book is only about, seeing, this one thing is about how to organize your information. Because you've done research about all these subjects, and how do I put it in a form like you said, the 48 laws was simple and easy to follow? How do I structure and organize my ideas? So you're inundated with all of this information, these things that you've learned. You've got to learn a system, a way of organizing the material. And then, and then you can start becoming creative with it. And in Mastery, I talk about that process. So you go through an apprenticeship phase in your 20s or whenever it is, it could be later in life learning all of these things, accumulating all of this information, right? And you have you reach a turning point. That turning point is you could become a prisoner of that information and become very conservative with it and think that this is the way I have to follow. This is what people before me did. This is what, you know, this is what I'm told. This is, this is how people normally work in this field. And you become a prisoner and you never reach that higher level of being creative. The creative person says, all right, I've learned all this information, but now how do I take it to the next level? How do I connect things that no one ever has connected before? How do I find different paths to explore? And the the secret to that is is to not being so afraid of failing, of being of being ridiculed or people laughing at you. And that's sort of what holds a lot of people back and makes them conservative in life. I mean, I think you touch upon this in, in the daily, I mean, you read a lot about this in the daily laws and also mastery and, and your other books, but you, you point out how important failure is. And it's, it's almost a cliche to say it, but it's really a good reminder in the sense that when you're trying to achieve something, it's going to feel miserable to fail. It's going to be hard to remember at that moment. Oh, this is the path to success, but it's, but this is where the patience comes in. This is where, you know, mentors come in. This is where reading about others who have experienced success and, and you see all of their failures along the way comes in. It's, it's such an important part of mastery to the, as you point out in the daily laws, the only way to, to be shown what your inadequacies are is to do them. Right. And to fail, you know, I, I can tell you a personal story that I didn't include in, in, in in the daily laws. I've told it before, but basically my fourth book was a book that I co-wrote with the rapper 50 Cent called The 50th Law. And um, we originally had a deal with, I believe it was Simon and & Schuster. And I was a bit nervous writing this book because I thought, mm, this guy's a celebrity. He's a lot more famous than I am. I better kind of bend to him and kind of make this a book about him 
and really absorb all the lessons that he learned and go into his world, etc. And so I, I wrote this book. I started writing it and I was turning in the material and people weren't responding to it very strongly, which was a shock to me because I had never had that happen in my books. Everyone kind of loved my books. It was very kind of disturbing. And then Simon Schuster canceled the project, said it's taking too long. But in fact, I think they didn't really like what I was producing. And then we brought in a new, a, a new publisher from Harper who ended up publishing the book. And he said, he told me, Robert, the problem here is you're deferring too much to 50. What people want is they want a Robert Greene book combined with 50 Cent, but they want a lot of your viewpoint and your, 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 your way of thinking there. And you had lost that. And that was very painful to hear because I've been working on it for a long time, but it was he was right. And, and he said, all right, so now you're going to write a book differently and you're going to figure it out and you have only eight months to do it. I can't do that. I can't totally recreate this book in eight months. But then I, I somehow managed to do it. And what it taught me was a very valuable lesson. I learned that sometimes I defer too much. I listened too much to what other people told me. But it was only through this moment of very painful, sharp failure where I had a book canceled, where I was going to maybe face the humiliation of writing something that would never get published and it would kind of scar my reputation. It taught me a weakness that I had, which was trying to please others too much, trying to 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 bend to them and trying to get the you know to to please this this famous celebrity and and lose my own voice. And the only way I could learn that lesson was through the very sharp pain and humiliation of having my book canceled. So I mean that's a grand example, but that happens all the time. If you only have success in your life. It's actually the worst thing that can happen to you because at one, you're never learning. You think that you've got the Midas touch, that whatever you turn, touch, you turn shit into gold because you're just so brilliant. And then because your head's up here, you're going to fall like I did that moment and you're not going to be able to learn the lesson and you're going to fail miserably and it's going to crush you. So failure and, and experimenting is an extremely important part of the process. Also, there's a, a meta skill there of acknowledging the failure, but also then really analyzing it, like almost doing an autopsy on it. Right. And, and, and you have to throw away all ego because you, you did something wrong one way or the other. And, and then somehow learning the lesson and moving forward, I think is not so easy. A lot of people say, okay, I failed. So now I'm ready for success because they're, they skip over the autopsy part, which is right. the critical part. And uh, you know, I, I, if a football team loses a game, they go to the video and analyze exactly like, okay, I moved too fast over here. I moved too slow over here. I didn't respond to these defenders over here. They have to be brutal about every piece of analysis. And I think that's though, though that analysis becomes the building blocks of the 10,000 hours of the mastery that, that you're talking about. And then the other meta skill, meta skill, which you talk about in, in a lot in the, in the book is, is change being able to say, okay, I'm going to do something differently right now. And, 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 and change is important too. And that's very difficult for people. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, let's say you've, you've kind of figured out your path in life. Things are going relatively smoothly and you're headed in this direction. Um, what happens is it can kind of get stale after a while. You're not exploring anymore. You're not trying out new things. You're not challenging yourself. 
and then you're going to and if you start losing interest in things this is a law that i described and i believe very firmly in mastery and human nature your level of excitement will determine so much of what happens to you so if you remain excited about your work then things will start to click and things will happen but if you keep following that path because it's the one that's worked for you it's going to start getting stale and that excitement is going to slowly die down and things are going to are you're going to have some problems later on you're going to hit a failure that's going to be very painful for you so you want to constantly be renewing yourself i i describe it this way so let's say i can only talk about books because that's what i do and it gets kind of boring but so I'm, I'm thinking about my next book right if i just do it like this is an easy book for me going straight this way i'm going to write the 48 laws of power part two i could practically do it in my sleep right okay no i'm going to write i'm going to go up here i'm going to write the great american novel you know i'm going to be jonathan franson no, that's too much of a reach i'll never make it i'm setting myself up for failure i tell people to go for that middle zone all right i'm going to write a book about the sublime weird i've never done anything like that it's kind of a different book for me but it's not that different it's a challenge it's not here where i'm going to fail it's not here where it's always the same and i'm going to lose interest it's here it's going to make me raise my game it's going to make me learn i could possibly fail whereas here i definitely will fail and it'll be very painful here if i fail I, it won't be so painful i've learned and it probably won't be as big a failure but it'll challenge me it'll get me out of my comfort zone so often in life if you've had some success you want to shake it up and you want to de deliberately challenge yourself and get out of your comfort zone so that you can get excited again about life because a challenge and something that you're not quite sure whether you can pull off suddenly you're going to kind of find new kinds of sources of energy within you some adrenaline is going to be flowing through you as opposed to that straight ahead stale path that you're following i i definitely agree and i have questions about this anything that kind of restarts the learning curve for you is going to give you that you know enormous dopamine rush and states of flow and so on and i like how the change or the getting out of the comfort zone that you're doing is still in the area of writing, but now you're writing a book that even to me, just hearing the title of it seems to me like, oh, that's different for Robert. I can't wait to read this book. Listen to part two, where we really dive deep into some of the later topics that come up in the Daily Laws. Part two is available today as well. Again, one of the smartest people I know, one of my favorite people, one of my favorite authors, Robert Greene.